Would you join me this morning in Jude, verse 3, the book of Jude, verse 3, as we attempt to lift up this sacred passage from an obscure writing, Jude, verse 3. Remember, the book of Jude is the small book just before the book of Revelation. Jude, verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Amen. You may be seated. Based around that line in which Jude says, verse 3, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. This means war. That's what I want to talk about around this text. This means war. As I noted in the previous sermon last week, that Jude takes great stride to inform his readers that loving people with agape love, the God love, is not an easy thing. But it's a process of learning that takes a lifelong journey. And that grasping your faith fundamentals is a process of learning as well. Might it further be argued, little to none of Christianity is an overnight learned process. In fact, transformation takes a number of years and a number of hills and valleys and a number of inter-struggles and a number of wars and a number of moments of frustrations and agony. In fact, learning what it means to follow Christ is a journey that involves some rain sometimes, some sunshine sometimes, some clouds sometimes, some moments in which the ship is rocked to and fro, moments in which we are buried in dungeons and buried in the valleys of the shadow of death, and yet out of each of them we learn how to walk with God because we realize God never leaves us nor forsakes us. It's a process process of progression in terms of stages and you will know that as you're moving along in your stage of growth you'll discover how God is working through you by allowing those moments in the process to mold and to shape your very being while at the same time assisting you to shed off excess baggage better said stuff we've acquired that is defined as unhealthy. Stuff like guilt, fear, doubt, and faithlessness, distrust, and often ingratitude, while at the same time, God, although we're casting off, 
is purifying us with his love that overwhelmingly is beyond measure or comprehension. Maybe it's only me, but sometimes I can't understand why God loves me so much when I consider the way I've treated him in return. Maybe it's just me, but I can't understand why God keeps on loving me when I keep on rejecting him from time to time. Maybe it's just me, but I just cannot understand how a God with such extensive love keeps on making himself available even when I tell him at times, don't show up. Maybe it's just me, but I can't understand how God keeps on allowing his grateful hands and his extensive mercy to keep rescuing me from time to time, even after I go back to the same stuff he's already delivered me from before. And yet I keep taking on the fear and the doubt, the frustration and the agony, the distrust, and there are times when I am overwhelmingly in gratitude to the gratefulness that God has given me, yet that love that he keeps extending unto us is the very thread that holds us together each and every day. That is why Jude tells his recipients in verse 2, may grace, I'm sorry, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you because it's not only going to get you through in dealing with people that are hard to deal with sometimes, but it's going to help you sustain yourself in the midst of growth as you walk through your progression with God. Jew takes great pains to remind us that everybody is not easy to love. In fact, he contends really in the inferred of the text that there are just some people that will push you not only to the edge, but if you're not careful, they will even knock you over the edge and you will find yourself very difficultly trying to recover back to where you previously were. But yet Jude infers in the text that it's divine love that allows you to keep coming back and to reconnect with those that are hard to love. But might I add, Jude might be strongly also suggesting that we must remember you and I are not the easiest persons to love as well. Sometimes, y'all was mighty quiet on that, but sometimes, sometimes we are difficult to get along with because of our own selfishness, because of our own desire to be right and our own energy to make sure that we are overwhelmingly above somebody else. And yet Jude is saying it's the same God and the same love that works through them to keep loving us because no matter how we look at it, morning by morning, we each experience the new mercy of God's divine grace. Yet Jude says that this experience, this understanding of realizing that this progression of growing in God is a concept that he says you must remember that it's a concept that I'm talking about only with those persons in which he described as beloved of God who are kept by or kept for Jesus implying that there is the Holy Spirit who keeps us when we certainly don't know how we are being kept. He is suggesting that I'm talking to those who are called of God and by called of God, he means those who have first heard the gospel, perhaps in a general invitation. 
John 3.16, but yet has personally accepted the call as the man asked in Acts 16, what must I do to be saved? He argues, I'm talking to those who are learning and who have learned that mercy is an upward look. He realized that mercy is not about those who give it to you. In fact, if we really want to be honest, mercy comes from up and above down unto us. And you'll only realize how appreciative mercy can be until you've been in a state where you needed mercy because you've been an unmerciful individual. He helps us realize that mercy is so from God that I realize when I have been unmerciful to God, yet his mercy keeps on rescuing me every single day. He says, may mercy and peace. I understand that peace is not just an upward look, but it's an inward look. Maybe our struggle with trying to find peace is we keep trying to find peace outside when peace really resides on the inside of who I am. If I've been able to look at myself and to see myself in the mirror for the real person that I really am and can really say I'm cool with that person. Although I might have to recognize I got some, got some scars and some bumps and I got some bruises and I got some stuff I need to work on, but I'm still all right with that person that's in the mirror because peace is on the inside. It's an inward look of who I am. But yet love is an outward expression. But I can't really love outwardly until I've understood how to love inwardly. And maybe Jude is trying to alarm his recipients that one thing you better understand, if you don't love you, you sure can't learn some, love somebody else outside of who you are. But it flows, it flows from the highest mountain down and through and out of each of us because it is a divine infusion. And the great thing is you can never have enough of each of it. You can't get enough mercy. You can't get enough peace. You can't get enough love. And might I add, you can't have enough grace. And you can't have enough hope. And you can't have enough faith. Because gratefully, God keeps infusing it into us each and every way. I discovered that when you read these 25 verses in Jude, there is a parallel of 15 of these verses that are almost duplicate to what we find in 2 Peter chapter 2, which has prompted some scholars to suggest that Jude might have borrowed his material from Peter and crafted it to fit the immediate audience to whom he's writing to. Some say that he may have taken the approach of Paul and use what we call a circulatory letter. That just simply means he wrote a letter and he sent it to various places and as those places received the letter, they would write their name on the top of the letter which means that they would simply claim ownership of the letter, confiscating it, making it their own when the letter is actually written to everybody with the same material in the same language as in Ephesians and Galatians. And yet, both Jude and 2 Peter raises the same issue in terms of being aware to the saints. Jude says, along with 2 Peter, be aware of false teachers and false teachings who are attempting to replace Jesus as Savior. 
So when I began to read verse 3 of Jude, I was immediately aware that the letter is not just a circulatory letter, but the letter also is a pastoral warning regarding internal church spiritual warfare. You can rest assured that whenever a congregation of people has recognized that there's a promise pronounced on their life, and whenever there is evidence of Ephesians 4 working in the midst of their life, whenever a congregation decides and then engages the tedious task of growing stronger, going deeper, and reaching higher, you have just solicited spiritual warfare. You invited into the context of where you are all because you made a decision that we are going to grow stronger, we are going to go deeper in the things of God, and we're going to reach higher for what God has in store. You have just unleashed an invitation for spiritual warfare. And might I add, to make matters worse, Jesus won't grow us without purging us. Let me say that again. Might I add that Jesus won't grow us without purging us. John 15 says that Jesus is not only the farmer who desires to spread his, desire, his divine seed, the word, in the soil of who we are, the heart, but he's also the gardener who prunes the branches connected to the vine so that we might bear more fruit. Jesus talked about removing specific branches or stems that the whole tree might benefit. He does that for health reasons. Now here's the slickman. Jesus is saying sometimes I have to remove the dead, the damaged, and the diseased branches because they are starting to affect the rest of the organism. Let me bring that down a little closer for you. I, I'm convinced that it's a hard thing to wait on God, especially when God is purging and doing what he does to make the tree better. But I understand now that unless God removes some branches, the whole tree will die in decay. So in other words, there are some people and some places and some things and some situations that God has to purge out of us in order for us to be able to grow to become the wholeness of who we were intended to be. That might mean that there may be some people, according to Paul's writing in Corinthians, who may have to be sick to realize that God ain't playing games. Or there might be some people that we might have to have some funerals over in order for us to realize that you ain't in this spot forever. Let me help you understand a little bit better. God is not in the business of crossbreeding. So here's what I mean by that. God eliminates crossing branches because crossing branches rub together and when they rub together, they will eventually rub out someone else's assignment. 
So what God does is he prunes and cuts back those branches so that they don't rub together because each branch has a specific assignment. But when folks start crossbreeding over into other areas that ain't their business, what happens in return is you rub somebody else's assignment off and that branch either dies or it falls away because it lacks the nourishment because the sap line has been cut by somebody else's irritation. And so maybe Jude is trying to help us understand that in the pruning process of God's glory, he cuts sometimes the lifeline from us that eventually we might bear more fruit. You ever had God to take your life and to move out of it what you thought meant so much to you only to realize later on it perhaps was one of the best things that could have happened because had you continue along the same lines of where you were, you would have missed what God now has in store for you. So the cross rubbing eventually eliminates the sap flow from one branch because it cuts the lifeline and eventually causes that branch to abort its destiny. And I'm just a little concerned that maybe God is trying to prune us at Zion because there's some folk who are crossbreeding. And in crossbreeding, you're rubbing out other people's opportunity to grow. And as a result of that, you are cutting off their lifeline. But watch this. Pruning stimulates growth, God, but pruning also can restrict growth when it's undesirable, people. Let me break that down for you. God, when pruning, is pruning for the sake of growth. But sometimes we prune because we don't want growth. Okay, let me make it more plain for you. So we act the way we act with other folk, particularly new branches, so that we can discourage the new branch from taking root where we are and so that as a result, the tree never grows because there have been undesirable growth by those in the congregation who desire to prune it so that the church never grows. Do you feel what I'm trying to tell you this morning? You got to watch what you're saying and doing because we might have a way of telling folk we want to grow, but at the same time, the backroom politic mentality is, I don't really want to grow because if I grow, that means there's a threat to who I am in congregational life. Y'all come on up with me. We... So Jude begins with writing that I, I, I'm writing that I'm testifying. I would like to simply talk to you about shouting. That's what he means right there in verse 3. I'd like to talk to you about shouting. Here's what he says. I want to make every effort to write to you about our common salvation. I would love to just spend time, says Jude in the letter, writing about shouting how joyous I am now to be a follower of Christ. But I must change from a spirit of shouting to a spirit of warning. He says then in the text, verse 3, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you fight or that you contend for the faith. 
That's how I know this was a pastoral writing because Jude, as he converses with the people, uses pastoral language. Watch what he says. He calls them beloved. He says beloved in parallel to John, 1 John 1, 2, and 3, where John calls his recipients little children. Here's what Jude is saying. As your spiritual father, I felt it necessary that I need to write to you and appeal to you. Now notice the words that Jews use. He says, I need to write to you. You are overlooking, but the word write there is a Greek term that means not that I want to write to you from a leisurely perspective, but he uses a word that says, I want to write to you as one conveying dangerous news. I want to warn you. I want to alarm you. I want to make a needful appeal unto you. In fact, when he uses the word appeal, he says, I want your immediate attention. I want you to hear me. I want you to realize exactly what I'm saying. It's a parental expression when mom and daddy says, do you hear me talking to you? Do you understand what I'm saying? You may not realize it now, but I'm trying to save your life, and I want you to listen to what I'm saying. That's the spirit to which Jude is writing. And Jude says, I have to warn you when I have discerned that danger is in the air, warfare is imminent. He says, I can't tickle your ears when there's danger all around you and your spiritual life is at risk. You don't realize as your spiritual father what I carry in my soul for each and every one of you. No rarely, rarely does a parishioner realize what a pastor carries in their soul. A pastor, a real pastor who cares for the sheep. And here's what I mean by that. The calling, this is what you miss, the calling and the responsibility of the calling is where the burden lies. Not necessarily the reception or the treatment of the people, but it's the calling in itself. It's the seriousness and the commitment that I have to retain as the Let me show you how, how serious this calling is and why it concerns me when we don't act right. In Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 17, listen to what the prophet says that God makes clear to him in reference to shepherding the people. Son of man, I have appointed you. So that might highly suggest that even if I want to get away from the responsibility, you can't run away from the appointment that has been given by God. That means that God has written my name with an assignment in the space and place and in time and even if I would like to abort it I would have to deal with the consequence of aborting God's appointment so even if I get upset and desire that the people don't appreciate what I'm trying to do if I want to get up and walk away I could do that you could care less you'd have another pass in probably another month or two but then I have to deal with God and what God's going to say, oh, so you decide you're going to tell me what your appointment is going to be. Listen to the text. Listen to the text. I have an appointment on me that I am a watchman to the house of Israel. 
That means that I have been appointed, says Ezekiel, as the overseer of the house of Israel. Heavy burden. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, God, to Ezekiel, when you hear me tell you what to tell the people, you tell it. There it is right there, Ezekiel 3.17. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. So listen to me clearly, church. When you resist me, you're not really resisting me. You're resisting the word. Now, if I tell you something ain't based on the word, fight all you want. But if I'm telling you something based on the word, just remember, we're not fighting Reverend Murphy. We're fighting God. And you run a danger when you do that. Listen to the word. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you do not, preacher, you do not warn them or speak out to warn the wicked from the wicked ways that he may live, that wicked man will die in his iniquity, but his blood will be on my hands. Here's what Jude is arguing. I'm warning you I'm trying to scream out the importance of this spiritual warfare that's going to happen because if I don't tell you, your blood says God will be on my hands. And I got to tell you, I got enough blood of my own so for me to stand before God with your blood on my hands. Verse 19, yet if you warn the wicked... And he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked ways. He shall die his iniquity. But you, preacher, will deliver yourself. Here's what Jude is saying. I don't want to tell you this. I really don't. I would like to merely be able to just simply sit here and tickle your ears. But I must warn you when you are not fighting or not fighting hard enough. Jude says, I have to tell you that because there is something and someone who wants to keep you from your spiritual fulfillment, experiencing your development in Christ. And I see what you don't see because the Holy Spirit helps me discern what you don't see. And Jude is saying what it boils down to, that what's boiling his blood is the outbreak of evil and deception Right there in the church. Ooh, y'all got quiet on me. And he says, in order for us to come to understand how to survive, bear in mind you got to admit you are in a spiritual battle. And he says there's a breakout of evil, or better said, this means war. Jude says, when you think about your spiritual survival, this means war. So Jude says, now it's time to rise and to fight for your spiritual survival. But he infers further in this word, not just your spiritual survival, but even your social, practical existential survival there's an outbreak of evil all around us says Jude not just in the church but outside the church all around us deteriorating schools in certain neighborhoods police brutality against certain people groups 
denying of employment because one person takes a stand for what they see as an injustice while employing thugs, domestic offenders, and drug users, that's evil. Human trafficking, homeland inflicted terrorism, persons being able to pursue high or purchase high-powered rifles and release their anger on innocent people in the job and even in the church, that's evil. For one group of people, it's a mental health issue. For another group of people, it's terrorism. When the president of your country calls a group of individual SOBs because they won't bow down to the golden image of the flag, that's evil in the name of Nebuchadnezzar. The opium crisis is a national public emergency for one group but the crack epidemic and the killing of unarmed persons of color is not. That's evil. Or better worse, three men, three men own more wealth than over half of all of Americans. That's evil. And Jude says, I am appealing to you that you fight that you contend because in verse 4 there have been some who've crept in. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more next Sunday. They crept in because that word crept is not what you think. They crept in. It's a better word. They slithered their way into the church. It's almost like a snake mentality. They crept in and Jude says, I'm here to tell you, you got to fight for the faith that was once delivered to the saints of old. Notice what he says, I need for you to contend. That word contend is an athletic word. And it's a word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25 through 27. But he substituted with the word labor. And anybody who's been in church long enough, you'll come to realize when you talk about working in church, it's labor but the labor ain't really the labor in terms of the work. It's the labor in terms of dealing with the people so you can get the work done. It's labor. It's labor, says Paul, to the point where it can overwhelmingly frustrate and drain you of all the energy that you have. And yet Paul warns us in, first, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, you've got to work and you've got to keep laboring because the faith depends overwhelmingly on you. And Jude is warning his recipients that I can't tell you enough that there are some folk who just don't want to see you get to where you need to be. And there are some people who don't want to see us get to where we need to be. And yet we need to understand that in order for us to really see where God is taking us, you're going to have to put on some gloves and fight. Because it's spiritual warfare to a, uh, to a point where there is a real evil presence that desires to fight against whatever is progressive for the kingdom of God. 
It will fight and fight and fight until it can't fight anymore. And the only way to make it stop fighting is to kill it. That's the reason why David knew that when he went into the valley to defeat Goliath, just merely defeating Goliath wasn't enough. But you got to cut the head off of the snake in order for the snake to really die. You're going to get that on the way home. Just think about that a little bit, what I just said. You got to cut the head off in order for the snake to really die. That's what Jude is saying here. When you are asked to contend for the faith, we're going to have to slay some giants. And you're going to have to cut some heads off. And Jude says, fighting for the faith. Normally in the New Testament, the word faith is defined as the act of believing. But in a few places, it's about content. And that's the real warning that Jude has. There are some folk who are trying to change the content of what you believe. And Jude said there's some principles we just ain't compromising. We're not going to compromise that whether or not Jesus is Lord. We already know that. Or whether or not Jesus is Savior, that's not up for discussion. Or whether that the atoning death of Jesus and his resurrection is imminent, that's not up for discussion. Or the indwelling and the filling and directing the power of the Holy Spirit is alive, that's not up for discussion. Or that we are saved by grace through faith, that is not up for discussion. In fact, Jude says in closing, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to raise the alarm that you take the position to be a fighter. Be a fighter for the faith because God fights for you. In fact, God is fighting even when we are not aware that a fight is going on. God is at work busy making sure that evil doesn't trump over us and at the same time we are basking in the reward of God's grace and mercifulness once again while there's spiritual wickedness in high places. So I'm called to be a fighter. In fact, Paul says at the end of my journey, I'm fighting a good fight. And maybe now we're called to measure whether or not our fighting is a good fight. But secondly, Paul uh, Jude says, not only be a fighter, but be faithful. There is something about people who come in to the fight or come in to the fold and then disappear. Faithfulness, says Jude, suggests that we have got to fight even when it looks like we might be losing the battle. But we're never going to lose the war. It's almost as if to say that there are some people to which they kind of wonder uh, whether or not we would ever come up anymore after the last election. Well, this ain't the first election we ever lost. And it certainly won't be the last. And yet every time in which there is a negative in terms of that, we've always managed to both fight and to remain faithful in the fight. And that's what Jude is contending. I need somebody to remain faithful in fighting for the gospel of Jesus Christ because God has been faithful unto you and unto us. Even when I quit fighting, he kept fighting. And even when I quit being faithful, 
he remained faithful. And yet Jude is saying, I'm calling you to become a fighter and a faithful servant of Jesus Christ because now that we must contend for the faith, I need you to come on the front line. Once again, it's a reflection of the same scenario that David finds himself when, when the giant makes his threat to the army Nobody wants to go down and face the giant. But yet everybody wants to live in the benefit of what it means to defeat the giant. Saul says to David, if you're going to go fight, well, first of all, you're too young to fight. But if you're going to go down and fight, put on my garment. And Jesus is trying to tell us through Jude, you got to be careful whose garment you're wearing to fight the fight. Because if you're wearing the wrong garment, your garment has chinks in the armor and you will suffer piercings and even death. But if you put on the whole armor of God, you will be able to handle the wiles of the devil. You'll be able to go down into the valley and stand before the giant who is attempting to overthrow the faith and ask the same question as David does. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who is attempting to trump the army of the Lord? Jude says, will the real fighters please stand up? In fact, Jude is arguing, now is not the time to be weak. Now is not the time to hang out in shallow waters. Now is not the time to sort of act timid in the fight. No, this, there comes a time in your life where you've got to stand up and you've got to fight. And I mean, you've got to fight with all that you have. And you've got to be faithful and stick it out. until your change comes. And that's what Jude is encouraging us to do this morning because when you think about what the enemy is trying to do, this means war. And when we declare war, there is no time for people to run back and try to get themselves. No, you need to be together now and push out in the army and fight. So maybe we need to understand we're not just hearing Jude talk about fighting for the faith, but we are also fighting for our own survival. We're fighting for life. We're fighting for growth. We're fighting for our space in this space called earth. Jude says you've got to fight and you've got to be faithful at it. And he seemed to suggest that you may not win every battle. But you got to stay on the battlefield until the war is won. And I don't know about you, but here's the insight. I've already peeped at the last page. I don't want the war. I just got to hang out. I got to hang out until the war has been declared defeated. In the meantime, I got to keep fighting. I got to stay faithful and I got to stay focused because if I do that, victory is imminent for me 
And no matter who creeps in, no weapon formed against me will be able to prosper. Because the God I serve blesses me going in and blesses me coming out. And I am then declared that I'm not the tail, but I am the head. And because of that, I'm already a winner, even when I have to declare it's war. Father, let the words of my 